You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we'll hear about the link between Alzheimer's and cancer. A clinician uh, who specialized in the care of patients with Parkinson's noted that his patients very infrequently ever got cancer. But before that, earlier this week, I left the studio to find out about a scheme which is helping a group of mums become better parents. I've come to a small children's centre on a housing estate in south-east London to find out a bit more about a new peer-led parenting group which a paper, published this week on bmj.com, shows as having great results. Well, the research took place in the London Borough of Southwark, which runs from the Thames down to Dulwich, but includes some of the highest levels of social deprivation absolutely in the country. Lots of social housing. That's Lucy Draper, the specialist trainer with the EPEC, that's Empowering Parents, Empowering Communities programme. The largest minority community is West African, but it's actually quite a diverse community. Quite a lot of families now from Eastern Europe, um, from the Caribbean, a more kind of established community, and and small groups of people from really wide range. There's something like 36 different languages spoken by users of our groups. Mm. And our rates of childhood behavioural problems, the kind that you're trying to uh, intervene in here, particularly high in Southwark? There's very high levels of youth crime, yeah. High knife violence, high gun crime. I mean, what you expect, really, in kind of deprived inner-city community, yeah. Now, it's interesting, in the paper you said that black and minority ethnic populations make up uh, a larger percentage of the group than than in Southwark, the borough that we're in, as a whole. Did you expect that? Did you design it with that in mind? Or uh, was that something that just happened spontaneously? Well, I think what we've known is that some minority communities haven't felt completely understood by mainly white middle-class professionals. Um that they've felt that their ways of bringing up children haven't been kind of recognised or honoured. And so they've tended to feel that parenting groups, parenting courses are almost like kind of disciplinary things for people who are failing at bringing up their children to be told how to do it better. And I think we certainly wanted to kind of engage those people by saying sort of we're interested in your ways of doing it, we kind of honour those, we want to build on the strengths. And we employ a lot of facilitators from from different minority communities to run the groups and I think that makes it easier for parents to come. The mix of population she mentioned there was represented in the mix of the group of mothers I had the chance to sit in on and their differences were evident in their approaches to parenting. When I spoke to some of them individually, the fact that this was peer-led by parents helped explain some of the success of the programme. You think that it's only you, and then when you hear other people are sharing your experiences, even though it's, um, you think, oh, wow, you know, it's quite stressful, but it's nice to know you're not the only one that goes through it. You don't see individuals, you just see us as a group of mothers, and that's the, the I don't know, the force that just puts us all together, that we're all mothers, no matter of anything else that's in between that. Well, it's evolved fairly gradually over the years, I'd say, out of... Um, some of the positive things that came out of our other work with parents and a sort of commitment to try and find a parenting course that made sense to parents themselves, that didn't feel like they were being talked down to or told what to do, that built on their strengths and that 
recognise their diversity, I suppose. So it evolved gradually over the years, and about three years ago now, we kind of fully manualised it, um, which meant that we wrote a kind of eight-week programme, two hours a week, which facilitators are able to use so that they're delivering pretty much the same curriculum to whatever group of parents gets it. But we're constantly revising. I mean, the population in South London changes all the time anyway, and we have to think all the time about adapting to new groups who move into the area, what their needs might be. So it is a case of of changing the curricula to to support parents who are coming along as opposed to having this set idea about what's the right way to do it. I think the core curriculum stays the same, but the manner in which it's delivered is the thing that's kind of sensitive. So our facilitators are very interested in how people were brought up themselves, for instance, what went on in their families, um, and what they pull out of that to do with their children and what they want to let go of. So those questions, that curiosity, that interest, that sort of valuing of where everyone's coming from is quite core to the programme. And it almost begins from that, from an interest in where people are. And that people-centred approach is successful. The group have carried out research on the programme, published on bmj.com. Caroline Penny is another programme manager for the project. Parents developed more positive parenting strategies, so they had them up their sleeve, really. It also showed that there was a decrease in children's negative behaviour. And it also quite interestingly showed that it was as effective as courses which are run by professionals as well. Um, It also showed that parenting stress went down. Yeah, I think the kids have been a bit surprised, like his mummy changed, because now with the course and everything, it's like they give you... They give you ideas of the things, how you can process to them and show them instead of just yelling and that's it. And with this course being very, very helpful. Everything changed in home, the kids' behaviour, ourselves for them as well. It's completely different at home. It's more calm, it's more response from them as well to us. It changed a lot, a big, 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 a huge difference, I can say like that. <laughs> Great. And the kind of things that you've learned here, do you think you could have learned them elsewhere? No. Mm. It's completely different. It's one thing is when you are with another parent and you explain your things, your feelings and behaviour of your kids, things like that. But the other parent can have the same feelings and be stressful, whatever. But it's like, what can I do? And you start thinking, well, what I'm going to do? to help my situation. But with the course, it's completely different. They give you examples of the things. They tell you how you can proceed it. And you can take a big advice from that and go forward. Because elsewhere, you will not have an advice. You just think, let's carry on and that's it. As you can hear, the parents I interviewed are incredibly positive about the course and very committed. A fact borne out in the research. I think another very important part of the research was that there was a very, very low dropout. So I think the dropout was, I think, 90% of people who started finished the course. So that was a fantastic finding as well. How does that dropout rate compare to um, professional-led support groups? Well, I think, so historically, running parenting courses has been quite hard getting engaging the parents to get them actually to come. And also the dropouts have been very high as well. 
So it's a much higher statistic than most parenting courses, in fact. Sure. The parents that I just spoke to were very positive about this, and they're they're really keen um, to sort of evangelise for you around. Yes. Um, yes. Is the is that community sort of spirit? I suppose you could yes. say. Do you think that's that's really key to the success of the program? Oh yeah, definitely. I think it kind of like it kind of like builds communities. I think that's one of the wonderful things about the EPEC project that you know parents get to talk to each other. Maybe they'd never talked to each other on the playground before, and they get to get some friends, and it kind of like builds the whole community really. And now people go around and they meet lots of friends, and they have people to go out with. They, I mean, it it just I don't know. It helps kind of build a cohesive community because I think. Lots of families in South London here are very transient and they don't have a lot of family around them. And so building those relationships makes the whole family feel more secure. Yeah, we've been talking. (laughs) Even with our husbands, to be honest, we talk. Whatever we learn here, like they don't have time to take the course, so we try to explain to them the things that we've been learning, the things that we need to change to help them and... All of us, we've been cooperate with that to get the things right on the place. <laughs> and if you're interested in that project, the full paper titled Evaluation of a Peer-Led Parenting Intervention for Disruptive Behaviour Problems in Children is now available on bmj.com. Now, is there a link between Alzheimer's and cancer? It's been observed in the brain of patients with neurodegenerative disorders that some of their neurons have undergone apoptosis. On the other hand, we also know that cancers arise because apoptosis has been circumvented. So is there a common biological element to these two disparate diseases? A study published on bmj.com this week seems to show that there is, and I'm joined on the phone by Jane Driver, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and a co-author on the paper, to talk about that. Thanks for joining us, Jane. My pleasure. So could you tell us a little bit more about this biological link? Um, A link between cancer and neurodegeneration has been noted all the way back uh, since the 1950s when a clinician uh, who specialized in the care of patients with Parkinson's noted that his patients very infrequently ever got cancer. And since then, there have been many trials, mostly observational studies, that have really confirmed this observation that patients who have Parkinson's seem to somehow be protected uh, against cancer, um, at least to some degree. And so the question arose as to whether um, there was a similar relationship with other neurodegenerative diseases. And the reason it's of interest at all um, is because there are a lot of biological connections between cancer and neurodegenerative diseases. Mm. Um, that could explain either an inverse relationship or a positive one. And so um, the, uh, I would say the basic science community is the most interested in these findings because they know very well that there are many genes that are shared by, um, by let's say, Parkinson's and cancer. For example, almost all of the familial genes for Parkinson's disease also have a role as either uh, oncogenes or tumor suppressor genes. What are the, these Parkinson's and oncogenes doing in the cell that could, could lead to these two seemingly quite disparate diseases? That's a great question. There's actually a number of answers. Uh, I think on the most basic level, um, if you think about cancer and neurodegeneration, they're kind of opposites 
in the sense that in cancer, checks and balances uh, that should be overseeing the process of cell division are turned off. Uh, But what happens in neurodegeneration is that those cells, which should live as long as we do, start dying early, and they undergo the process of apoptosis inappropriately. And it turns out that many of the genes, as I said before, that are involved in the regulation of the cell cycle and of apoptosis are involved in both diseases. So, so that's the kind of on the most basic level what the link uh, might be. Sure. Now, um, you're looking for the inverse link between cancer and Alzheimer's in this Framingham Heart Study. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the patients in that study, the, the population on which you were basing this? Sure. The Framingham Heart Study is really one of the most perfect studies in which to look at a question like this because it's a population-based study that actually uh, takes place in the town of Framingham, Massachusetts, and the study's been ongoing for over 50 years. Participants in the study have had detailed examinations by physicians over time. They have all kinds of questionnaires that they fill out, so we really know a lot about them, and in particular, what diseases they get and what risk factors for diseases they might have. And then the diseases are confirmed by the study physician. So, for example, Alzheimer's was diagnosed by neurologists, and cancer was diagnosed by cancer specialists, and they had biopsies on all the patients. So that's its strength. And you're not relying on medical records. You're not relying on a huge um, countrywide database that's full of gaps. You really have a, a very careful collection of everything. Um, what I wish we had was uh, DNA on all of these patients, but unfortunately, the bloods have been used up long ago for the cohort. But of course, the study is ongoing, and now we're collecting all kinds of things that would be useful to um, better understand a relationship like we see in this study. So you could use that molecular biological detail to, to actually elucidate what uh, some of these links are. That's right. That would be, um, that's kind of the next step in this type of research is to see uh, what, you know, how are patients who get uh, neurodegenerative diseases different than patients who get cancer? Um, And the reason that that's so interesting is because you really start getting to the level of what causes cancer and what causes neurodegenerative disease uh, kind of open a new horizon on the disease, the understanding of it, and also the treatment of it. And I could give one simple example of a gene called PIN1. PIN1 was discovered now uh, almost 20 years ago by my co-investigator, Ping Lu. And it is a very fascinating protein. It works on other proteins by bending them into different conformations, thereby uh, kind of profoundly affecting their function, perhaps turning them on and off in the case of an enzyme. Mm. And this PIN1, turns out, is critical for the cell cycle. In order for a cell to divide, PIN1 is kind of heavily involved, so therefore it has a strong role in cancer. And in the case of Alzheimer's disease, it's actually critical for keeping the proteins tau and beta amyloid healthy. Um, It helps to kind of recycle them when they get phosphorylated and they aren't working well. Um, It actually brings them back to their functional form. And it turns out that in Alzheimer's disease, PIN1 is absent or inactivated in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's that we examine. So here you have one protein that, if, it, if you have too much of it, causes cancer, and if it's absent or dysfunctional, causes Alzheimer's disease. 
of course, this doesn't explain, you know, the whole association that we see, but it was actually this basic science observation that led me to pursue this study in the first place. You did find this inverse association between cancer and Alzheimer's disease. How confident with that association are you? We're confident for a number of reasons. The first is that um, there have been very few studies that have looked at this association and and they found almost exactly the same inverse association. And the second is just the quality of the database, that I think what our study has to add is that all of our cancers were prospectively discovered and, and validated in a population, and the same with Alzheimer's. The third reason was, you know, obviously with a study like this, there are all kinds of potential biases that could be explaining an inverse association. And one of the most important is that of survival bias, because people who survive a serious disease like cancer have an increased risk of dying from that cancer should it come back. Uh, Patients who had cancer were at decreased risk of Alzheimer's. But then the question is, well, how do you know that's not just because they're more likely to die before they reach the age of getting Alzheimer's? So one of the analyses that we did that had not been done in the prior studies was we actually um, took all of the people who died out of the analysis, and the association did not change at all. So that was that gave us some confidence that what we were seeing was not uh, primarily due to uh, survival bias. Okay. As you said, this research is quite basic science um, still. So what do you think it means for clinicians um, with patients who perhaps have cancer or or Alzheimer's today? I think the important take-home message is not that we want to go out and tell our patients who have survived cancer that they'll never get Alzheimer's. All we can see is a decreased risk. It's not no risk. And again, we still don't know why. Could it still be due to some kind of bias? Yes, that's very possible. And so there has to be more work done, and um, this is a story that's going to unfold over the next decade, probably. Well, Jane, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us about it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. And again, that research paper is available for free on bmj.com. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with practical advice on emergency contraception and the most effective way to give up smoking. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.